tries to figure out how he can manipulate whoever it is that he's interacting with. And, you know, you can do it in different ways, flattery, um, coercion, intimidation, you know, it's just the, it, whatever it is he thinks that will work. And in the case of um, uh, President Trump, he would usually try flattery because that's kind of what President Trump was pretty susceptible to, as I think we all know from you know, our own general experience of living in the United States over you know, this last period. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Amanda. Vladimir Putin has ruled Russia for over 20 years, and in these two decades, Putin has seen Russia through its rise as a great power and economic stagnation. He has explicitly rejected principles of liberalism and multilateralism, annexing foreign land, jailing political competitors, and undermining Western democracies. So who really is Vladimir Putin? In this episode, we discuss Putin's rise to the Russian presidency, how his time in the KGB affected his worldviews, and what his ambitions are. We will then examine how his regime has changed the economic and political contours of Russia, as well as what we can expect from Putin over the coming years. Joining us today is Dr. Fiona Hill. Dr. Fiona Hill is the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs in the National Security Council. She is also the co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, you're most welcome. It's great to be here. To get us started, we know Vladimir Putin has been in power in Russia for now almost over 20 years. So can you give us an overview of his history? How did he rise to power in Russia? Well, in many respects, it was somewhat unexpected, um, probably for him as well as everybody else. The um, whole origin story of this dates back to the 1990s when Boris Yeltsin was the first president of an independent Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin had previously been the head of what was then the Russian Republic within the um, USSR. But after the dissolution um, of the Soviet Union, Russia became obviously standalone, the successor state, and Boris Yeltsin then becomes the first president. And uh, in the 1990s, uh, Boris Yeltsin, you know, basically he won two elections. There was a uh, basically a prohibition in the Russian constitution against two terms for the president after that was passed through but he also wasn't well he actually had pretty serious heart issues and during his second election to become president he pretty much died um, in the process of the election uh, not any exaggeration he had a major heart attack had to have open heart surgery all this of course behind the scenes them telling everybody in the whole world that he had a bad cold yeah one heck of a cold and so it became very clear that he was going to have to have some kind of successor and there was a lot of concern around that time and Yeltsin and his family, his real biological family, and then all the people around him who were also called or referred to as the family, his close associates, who had been, you know, like a lot of people in those kinds of settings, enriching themselves uh, by taking advantage of the fact that Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia, um, although this is a very different Russia at that point with a lot of debt, um, pretty much insolvent and a lot of economic crisis. The whole point was that they hoped that they wanted to uh, prevent themselves from having any kind of criminal prosecution or any kind of retribution after Boris Yeltsin left office. And his uh, ratings uh, in this period were dreadful. I mean, he basically had to um, almost in single digits. 
And he only won re-election because he'd made a deal with the so-called Russian oligarchs, uh, the big business people who were basically bankrolling his uh, re-election and making sure that there was no um, serious opposition. So they start looking around essentially for someone who can succeed Yeltsin, it's kind of called Operation Successor, and who will protect his interests and the interests of people around him. And they start trying out all these various people uh, as deputy prime ministers or others in the system to sort of see what they would be like. And they eventually fall upon Vladimir Putin. But this is again is something of an accidental way. So Putin under normal circumstances would never have been anywhere near the center of power like this because he starts off as a relatively junior uh, KGB officer, comes from a very poor background, joins the KGB to get ahead. That's his kind of route for social mobility. That's back in the 1970s. And he thinks of himself as having a whole career in the KGB until the Soviet Union falls apart. And he's been serving outside of Russia in Dresden in East Germany for a lot of the period of time. He sort of misses out on all the major action. And when the Soviet Union falls apart and the KGB is also disintegrating, he gets a job uh, through various connections dating back to university in the office of his former law professor, Anatoly Sobchak, who had be, at this point become the first independent mayor of St. Petersburg, what had previously been Leningrad. And what I mean by independent mayor was the first post-Soviet mayor who was independently elected, not just basically appointed by the Communist Party. And so he had been actually uh, Vladimir Putin's law professor at Leningrad State University when he was studying there back in the 70s. So he gets a job in his office, the mayor's office is a deputy mayor, and he's in charge of all these business deals, overseeing deals with foreign businesses, Russian businesses, doing all kinds of licensing, helping people find property. And as you can imagine, it's right at the center of all the corruption that was really emerging there in the 1990s. And he makes all kinds of connections. And of course, he still keeps his KGB connections. And then when uh, Anatoly Subchak fails himself to win re-election, people around Putin who'd been working in the mayor's office recommend him for other jobs, including in Moscow. And he first gets a job in the Kremlin Property Agency, basically through all the kind of various ties that he has uh, made uh, and built up in St. Petersburg. And that was basically looking after everything that the Kremlin owns from all kinds of things from the Kremlin itself to cars and planes and uh, everything you can possibly think of, datches, hospitals, clinics, holiday resorts. The Kremlin has an enormous amount of property and he's basically in charge of all of this. Again, another huge source of corruption, but he also then knows who's availing themselves of Kremlin property. And so he gets lots of information on people. He makes lots of new connections and uses his sort of the things that he's learned in the KGB about how to make friends with people, influence people, manipulate people, blackmail people. And then suddenly he gets uh, made um, the head of the KGB from there because he's obviously managed to figure out how to get ahead. And so he's kind of always walking up, you know, in this kind of unforeseen way up the corridors of uh, the Russian state and eventually uh, ends up in a position where he becomes uh, uh, an acting president you know, from various other positions. So he has a pretty meteoric and very quick rise up the ranks as soon as he gets into Moscow. And it seems to be pretty much because people thought they could manipulate him. They thought that he would be um, you know, a good sort of uh, servant of the state, and he calls himself this in Russian, it's a gosudarstvenik, somebody who is a servant of the state. They thought actually he was pretty manipulable and uh, malleable 
and that he would look after Yeltsin and the people around them's interests and that they could manipulate him in a way that he would be a figurehead president. So that's kind of how he, how he ends up. And he ends up then being named Boris Yeltsin's successor. And of course, as we all know, he turns out to be something quite different. He's the one who does the manipulating, not the person who was, was manipulated. But he does protect the interests of Boris Yeltsin and his immediate family and make sure that nobody touches them. So he does hold up that part of the bargain, but not necessarily for all the strap hangers, all the people who hang on around Yeltsin. And I guess kind of to go off of that, a question that we're really curious about, but we're sure a lot of people are too, is what is Vladimir Putin like as a person? Um, and especially his time in the KGB, how does that affect his worldview and the way he thinks about things? Well, I think if you've spent that much time in the KGB, I mean, basically his whole uh, professional life and, you know, one way or another, he's still part of that cohort of people who joined the KGB, you know, back in the uh, early 1970s. It basically shapes everything about him. And it makes it actually very difficult to know what he's really like as a person because he spent all that time dissembling in some way, hiding details of his personal life, uh, always putting on an act, a performance, and always trying to sort of figure what he can get out of people. So when you actually see and meet him in person, he's not a particularly um, physically impressive person. You know, he's not particularly tall. Um, you know, he's the kind of person who could, um, one of my uh, colleagues, Pavel Bayev, uh, a Russian commentator, said that Vladimir Putin's the kind of person who could disappear in a crowd of two. You know, so basically that's the whole um, you know, ethos of a, a KGB, a good KGB agent, is just you don't notice him. <laughs> he's always there. There's lots of people who think they met him people who think they had interactions with him. It might not have been him at all. Uh, other people who have no recollection at all of meeting him, uh, but he was probably there because, you know, they're just, he was the sort of person that you didn't pay attention uh, to. People who wrote him off as, you know, as I said before, somebody who could be manipulated or somebody who was a nothing, which is actually not the case at all. But he's something of a cipher. He, you know, allows people to project things onto him and for him to be what they want him to be. So he, you know, behind the scenes is both complicated, not very complicated. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a guy and, and he behaves, he's very much a, a man's man, and, you know, um, pretty sexist, misogynistic, uh, you know, kind of a product of his sort of time and era, born in the 1950s in the Soviet Union and, you know, kind of growing up in a certain period. He has a very similar outlook to a lot of the other people in his same age group, his same generation, particularly people who've been in the security services. Uh, he is a student of Russian history. He's spent an awful lot of time reading about Russia and he you know, kind of thinks he knows uh, Russian history and Russian culture inside out and he's got an extraordinarily good grasp of it. But he kind of projects his own views and his own experiences on everything else as well. And he's a, he's a pretty... Um, let's just say distrustful, cynical uh, person, uh, which doesn't mean to say that he doesn't have, you know, any close family and interpersonal relationships. He clearly has friends, you know, who he's very tight with, but, you know, he's also got a very close circle of people around him. He's not a warm, you know, fuzzy, open person. He has uh, a, a pretty cynical sense of humor, sense of irony, rough around the edges. But the other thing is that he's also been in a bubble for the last 21 years, ever since he rose to those heady heights of president of Russia in 2000, 1999, 2000. He's been in a cocoon that whole time and one in which, you know, he has an awful lot of influence and power. So, you know, he's even more remote in many respects than he was at any other point in the past. 
And I know in 2015, you wrote a great book about Putin, Mr. Putin um, operative in the Kremlin. Um, so I guess for those of us who are wondering then, why is understanding Putin himself and his personal history and his personality so important to analyzing Russia um, today? Because he's so much dominated the political scene there for the last 21 years, and indeed, you know, this past year, he has amended the constitution, you know, perhaps not you know, in entire conformity with Russian law, in fact, but he's uh, made it his business to amend the constitution in a pretty quick, fast fashion to ensure that he can, if he chooses, stay in power till 2036, by which time he will be 84 years old. So um, you know, he, he has signaled that if it's necessary, he will stick around because he now has the same dilemma that Boris Yeltsin had. It's if he leaves the scene, what happens? Because we know from you know, so much investigative journalism, the work of people like Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure who has a video on YouTube talking about Putin's palace on the Black Sea near the, you know, in the Russian region of Krasnodar, that um, you know, billions and billions of dollars have been expended out of these Kremlin properties. Uh, the money's on um, you know, the enrichment, the private enrichment of Putin and people around him. And so you know, to be able to ensure a safe uh, retirement in some way and protection still having influence, it's very important for him to be able to choose the method of his departure. And so uh, everything revolves one way or another, whether we like it or not, around Vladimir Putin in the Russian system. He becomes the wild card in the system because if he is uh, sick in any way, has an accident or just dies, you know, heart attack, then what? You know, the whole system gets sort of thrown into this whole period of uncertainty. So there's uncertainty about the manner of his departure. and uh, There is uncertainty about how long will he stay in power? Uh, he's said up until 2036 at least. And in a way, he's bottling up the whole system. Uh, there is, uh, you know, nothing that, uh, in, in theory, that happens without uh, Vladimir Putin's say. I don't think in practice that that's actually the case, because nobody has that kind of absolute power and they can't keep up on absolutely everything. But let's just say most consequential things, one way or another, have to be taken to Putin. And so we have to kind of figure out the context in which he operates, the way that he thinks. And if we can't get to uh, really understanding him or get lots of personal details about him, because of course a lot of this is kept secret, not just because of his former KGB past, but also because of just the nature of the Russian state, which is still extraordinarily secretive. Uh, it's a closed system, a black box, not an open transparent system like ours, although information does get out of there. We have to kind of understand the context uh, in which he grew up, the context uh, of the kind of uh, his interactions with people, the way that he might think about things. That's what I and my colleague Clifford Gaddy tried to do in the book about Mr. Putin. We talk about the kind of six faces or personalities of Mr. Putin, uh, which are really kind of ways of sort of thinking about the way he thinks about the world and uh, trying to kind of understand how he would, for example, think of himself as being a, a servant of the state, think of economics and you know kind of what his grasp of economics would be the, this kind of um, his family survived the siege of Leningrad uh, during World War II in which um, you know the the German uh, occupying uh, armies basically um, kept uh, Leningrad in you know this terrible state where nothing could get in nothing could get out of the city for you know best part of two years in which many people starved to death and in fact um, uh, Putin's own mother almost did 
and you know these kinds of sort of traumas that his family experienced and how they shaped his outlook on life you know for example so you've got to kind of be creative in sort of figuring out what makes uh, Vladimir Putin tick and all of the people around him because uh, you know we one way or another we're dealing with them and they have such a dominance and a stranglehold on uh, Russian politics they're not the same as all of Russia but they've created a pretty tight uh, system around them, you know, what the Russians call a vertical of power, a, 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 a very narrow pyramid with them right at the top of it, and basically keeping in check everything else below. Great. So I want to pick up kind of exactly what you were talking about, about this strangle held of power and this control or perceived control that Putin has over the government. So um, since coming to power, Putin has redirected and brought a lot of stability kind of to Russia and to the Russian government. And with that um, kind of levels of control and kind of furthering the levels of secrecy within that. So what do you think, given this understanding of Putin's personality and personal history, um, how does that relate to Putin's short-term and long-term motivations and, and ambitions for Russia domestically? Well, um, the ambitions, I think, are fairly personal at this point he he wants to leave a legacy behind of a sort of system that he's created and early on in his tenure early on in his tenure he made it very clear that he wanted to restore Russia as a great power both at home and abroad so first of all stabilizing the country you know which you uh, already suggested in the question and that meant paying off all the debts and making sure that the state was solvent because it was pretty much bankrupt when he inherited it from Yeltsin. And part of that was because oil prices during the Yeltsin era in the 1990s had been about $10 a barrel. And under Putin, they rose to almost $150 a barrel. And as oil and gas and other natural resources, the main pillars of the Russian economy, you can imagine that the state revenues suddenly dramatically increased as a result of uh, also increased oil and gas production, turning that whole sector around, but also this windfall that they had. And Putin was actually very good at uh, managing this, thanks to a, a very good technocratic team of economists and you know, financial experts and people at the central bank, uh, to make sure that they stabilised uh, Russia's macroeconomic uh, perspective. And they paid off the debts ahead of time. And the whole point was never to get into debt again and to you know, run the economy into the ground. So they've been very careful about that. And then there was restoring the um, power of the central state apparatus. And he's done a lot of that, obviously, <laughs> making sure that um, you know, there's been no dissent in many respects as well, a very managed political um, uh, system, but also strengthening back up the military, building the military back up again on every aspect, including strategic uh, nuclear forces, so that you know, Russia was no longer a kind of military basket case, as frankly it was at the end of the Soviet Union when you know, the Russian military was defeated uh, essentially in its own internal war with Chechnya in the early 1990s, that the really you know, the product of the collapse of the Soviet Union, a domestic civil conflict, but you know, the Russian military wasn't capable of you know, suppressing, uh, you know, basically uprising in part of its own, uh, own territory. Um, and as a result, it restored to, resulted to horrible brutality. And eventually the KGB, the FSB, the, um, the, the security services stepped in instead of the military to suppress things in an incredibly horrible way. In any case, um, that was also part of his restoration effort. And, and once the, he got to a state where he felt that the domestic situation and you know, the military, all the indices of power 
you know, were restored again, that's when we start to see, you know, Putin playing a bigger role on the international stage. So around 2007, when Putin makes this famous speech at the Munich Security Conference, which is essentially Russia's back and, you know, we're sick of being kicked around and we're going to show you kind of a message that it comes out, you know, no longer are we great at home, now we're going to be great abroad again, you know, then we see a whole host of actions after that point. Uh, there is uh, the war with Georgia, the invasion of Georgia to stop Georgia from seeking uh, membership action plan in NATO. We've seen the same thing, obviously, subsequent to that with um, Ukraine, stopping Ukraine from uh, seeking association agreement with the European Union as well, and obviously annexing Crimea and all the various interventions and things that uh, we've um, seen uh, the Russian government do. But the annexation of Crimea becomes um, a turning point in all of this in 2014. Because this sort of cements Putin as a restorer of part of the old empire as well. It's not just the restoration of power at home and the indices of power, the economy or the military, but this is an acquisition of territory again. Because what we tend to forget is that Russia has this massive sense of loss from the collapse of the Soviet Union. But Russia lost an empire. Putin talks about it twice. He says that you know Russia. Uh, lost a state twice in the course of the um, 20th century, 1917 Russian Revolution, loss of the empire, uh, and uh, 1991 loss of the Soviet empire, the Soviet Union. And suddenly Putin then becomes a restorationist in that sense of seems to want to take back some of the territory. So the annexation of Crimea becomes something very different. And he obviously wants to be remembered for that because he has this big speech. He you know, talks about Russia um, breaking out of... Um, encirclement by Europe. This is kind of Russia reversing all of these predictions by Europe. But really what he's doing is grabbing territory from you know neighboring country Ukraine and uh, an effort to take back a bit of the empire again. And then of course, you know, triggering off this uh, war in the Donbass in um, Ukraine's um, far um, Eastern region. And so, you know, Putin then becomes something different around that kind of point and becomes more of a kind of an old style, you know, Russian and Soviet leader more focused on sort of shoring up the state in different ways, um, exerting power in a kind of rather brutal and blatant fashion abroad. Earlier, he um, seemed to be very keen on having Russia as one of the major economic powers. And of course, after uh, the annexation of Crimea, Russia gets kicked out of the G8 and seems to then to kind of abandon any kind of ideas of uh, rising to prominence by the strength of its economy and, you know, kind of again, the sort of strength of example of the country itself being, again, a great power, it more seems to be kind of a restorationist effort to um, exert control over the neighborhood. So Putin at this point, you know, seems to be kind of going down in history as more one of the old Soviet leaders or the old czars who were expanding territory, and also is kind of thinking about this legacy of a system that he has created. And, you know, what does he want to be remembered as? Probably Vladimir the Great. I mean, somebody who in, in many respects has, you know, come out of this kind of uh, Russian tradition of kind of major leadership, uh, all tied up with a sort of a dominance in a you know geopolitical sense of uh, the space, the Eurasian space. And kind of speaking of the annexation of Crimea, I know in the past you've talked about or you've written about how um, 
Putin or the US and Russia aren't really in a new Cold War, partly because we're still operating under the same system. And instead, Putin wants to secure for Russia, and as you just talked about, right, a seat at the table with the West on equal terms with the US. Um, and it doesn't want to isolate Russia outside of international institutions and decisions. But then also speaking of this other part of Putin and his like wanting to restore um, Russia and its territory, how does Putin, I guess, balance these two needs, justifies behavior that seems so unacceptable to the West, like annexing Crimea, um, with his also his need to secure Russia's seat with the US as the top um, in, in international institutions? Well, you know, he no longer sees the West as something to emulate. So, you know, he's it's basically getting to the, to the table by gunpoint. He no longer wants to get there by power of example. He doesn't want to, He Russia was always seeking to be the equal of the West, equal to the West as a block, as you know, the inheritor of the Soviet Union, the inheritor of the, so, uh, the Soviet bloc. Russia doesn't want to be just a regular power at the table along with everyone else. So Russia sees as the peer competitors, frankly, China and the United States, and now sees China rising, you know, much faster than the United States, and thinks that the United States and the West are unraveling on their way down, and that you know Europe, um, as a kind of collection of countries, uh, is is not something anymore that sets a, a model or a tone for what Russia wants to be. So there's there's been this turning point in the way that Putin sees things. He does still see and believe that they're in a geopolitical struggle. I mean, in many respects, we are in a bit of a system struggle still because Putin is a threat to our system in all the cyber attacks and, and systems, you know, to kind of put it in that way as well, with all the cyber attacks, the subversive actions, the exploitation of our own vulnerabilities and weaknesses. I mean, it's definitely the case that uh, Russia wants to see the United States shrunken down in terms of its global influence and sees the United States, its capacities and capabilities as a threat, and he wants to reduce that threat to Russia. I don't think he wants the United States to completely go away, because I think it would be a very uncomfortable situation for Putin to be in a world where China dominates, because then Russia is absolutely, without a doubt, a lesser player. I mean, if you think about the capacities of China, I mean, Russia has territorial size on its, um, you know, its side of the ledger, and it obviously has a major strategic nuclear arsenal and a major conventional force, but it doesn't have any of the other indices of power that China does. I mean, China's population is so much in excess of, uh, you know, the, of Russia's. Um, China's location is very threatening to Russia because, I mean, Russia has a border with China. It doesn't have a border with the United States. I mean, sort of in theory it does with the Aleutian Islands and, you know, kind of basically Alaska and Kamchatka. I mean, we, we have a sea maritime border, but we don't have a, a giant land border uh, as Russia and China do. Um, and, and, and Russia and China have had, a, an, an, in the past, a very uncomfortable and contentious relationship. They've clashed over the border in the Amur River in the 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, when, in the communist period, they weren't close. Um, you know, they, in, in some respects, they had an affinity, but they were not, uh, you know, close uh, partners. And so if Russia were left alone in a world dominated by China, a G1, I think that that would be um, extraordinarily uncomfortable because Russia wouldn't have the leverage it does. In a way, I think that Russia persuades China that Russia is a force itself to be reckoned with by sparring with the United States. 
And so, you know, it wants to diminish the United States' capacity to do harm to Russia, because in Putin's mindset, the United States will always try to do something because he would think about the things that he would do if he was in the United States and then decides that we're actually going to do them even if actually we hadn't thought about it and and didn't want to do it because we don't see ourselves in trying to carve up Europe anymore in fact you know I, I think you know in many respects the United States wishes Russia would just go away and just you know go over there and do its thing and just you know please let us do our thing you know because we're trying to you know and where we have to let's just you know kind of try to um solve climate change and let's try to work on pandemics but why are we you know clashing all the time like this but russia still sees itself as as part of that massive geopolitical struggle you see kind of for putin it's a continuum dating back to the the cold war still that cold war mind frame the united states is still out to get everyone he reads everything through that uh, that prism that lens that's the way that he sees things and then again at the back of their head is like uh-oh we don't want to be just with china on our own here so we've got to, in a way, intensify this struggle with the United States to show everyone we're still in the game. We're really a great power and we deserve being at these kind of like top rank. You know, this is now a tripartite world with, um, you know, Russia, China and the United States. Great. So that brings us to our next question, which is about the United States perspective, um, which you kind of walked right into. So. Um, you've served in national security roles under President Obama and President Bush, and then also served in the Trump administration as an advisor on Russia. So how was Trump's approach to Russia different from his predecessors? It's just extraordinarily personalized. Now, that being said, if we go back to you know, the era of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which happened on the watch of George Herbert Walker Bush, you know, we certainly had a lot of personalization of uh, the presidency and you know in the terms of the president in the United States also is in charge of foreign policy and has all the interactions with foreign leaders and so it always had to be George H.W. Bush you know back then who had to deal with Gorbachev and before that of course was Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev who um, you know cemented a degree of a personal relationship along with Margaret Thatcher in the end of uh, the Cold War that really helped to kind of bring the Cold War to its uh, fruition, and of course all the major arms control agreements of uh, the late 1980s. But you know it was really on George H. Uh, w. Bush to try to kind of figure out how you kind of navigate into the new Russia, and then of course Bill Clinton comes afterwards, and that always requires some kind of personalization of the relationship in terms of personal interactions with the Russian um, with the Russian leader. And you know Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin, you know, were pretty famously. Uh, known for palling around. It was known as the Bill and Boris show. My um, uh, colleague and former boss from the Brookings Institution, Strobe Talbot, wrote a whole book about this, The Russia Hand, about his time watching, you know, Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin and the nature of their relationship. But the personalization of the whole relationship with the United States wasn't quite so acute. And so though we've seen the, um, you know, presidents from Clinton, through George W. Bush, who famously looked into Putin's eyes and you know, tried to get a measure of his soul, you know, to Barack Obama, who actually was dealing with Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev, who'd replaced Putin temporarily as um, president, while Putin pretended to be not in charge as prime minister, but was really still in charge. Uh, you know, we, we've all had the, you know, degrees of personalization, but with Trump, it becomes, it's just about Trump and uh, his relationship with Putin and American, you know, kind of US relations 
as they were in the past and as they were likely to be at the future were just kind of put to one side. It was all about, you know, how Trump and Putin would interact. Now, of course, that was exacerbated by the deep suspicions in, you know, many circles in the United States that uh, President uh, Putin had, of course, intervened in 2016 uh, on behalf of um, Donald Trump. I mean, so the suspicions of that. I mean, uh, what we saw was President Putin absolutely intervened. I mean, my belief was, yes, he was trying to sort of tip the scales. He was trying to uh, damage Hillary Clinton as much as possible. But it wasn't that the Russians were in, actually anticipating that uh, Trump was going to be elected. It was a bit of a shock to them, just as it was to everyone else. But then they thought that they would take as much advantage as they possibly could to try to exploit our vulnerabilities, divisions, polarization. And also the way that, you know, President uh, Trump was so keen on being able to sit down with Russia to get a deal, because what Trump wanted to do was to get an arms control deal with Russia. He was always talking about this. And Putin wanted one of those as well. And he also wanted an arms control deal. But, you know, it was all uh, really about Trump and Putin meeting at all times. And we were all fixated on this. And it wasn't about the larger contents of that relationship. And in fact, you know, we saw that President Trump was himself paranoid about talking about 2016 because the suggestion that uh, President Putin had intervened on his behalf seemed to, you know, suggest to him as well as to everyone else that then therefore he was illegitimate. And so there was this, all this heightened anxiety on his part as well as everybody else's about him meeting with Putin. So, you know, we had a, a confluence, a very strange confluence, um, unfortunate and tragic uh, confluence of circumstances that shaped that whole relationship between Russia and the United States through the prism of the relationship between Trump and Putin, you know, from 2017 through to 2020. And what do you think Putin kind of made of Trump, made of this person that he was dealing with um, during kind of these personalized conversations that he was having with him? Well, Putin was trying to do what he always does, to try to figure out how we can manipulate someone. And, you know, kind of President Trump was always saying he wanted to be Putin's best friend. And that was great for Putin because Putin always wants everyone to think he's their best friend and that, you know, kind of he's their best friend so that he can get something out of it. So Putin does this with everybody, just to be very clear. Putin tries to figure out how he can manipulate whoever it is that he's interacting with. And, you know, you can do it in different ways, flattery, um, coercion, intimidation, you know, it's just uh, it, whatever it is he thinks that will work. And in the case of um, uh, President Trump, he would usually try flattery because that's kind of what President Trump was pretty susceptible to, as I think we all know from you know, our own general experience of living in the United States over you know, this last period. And kind of to um, talk more about US-Russia relations, so where do we stand today with Russia? And I guess maybe a follow-up question would be, what are the first steps that maybe the Biden administration can take to improve relations with Russia? Well, improving relations with Russia is very difficult, to be frank. I mean, it's not that it's not doable. It's just that I don't think that the Russians really want to improve it in any major way right now for many of the reasons that we've just talked about. Because in a way, having a bad relationship with the United States is a mobilizing principle and force. You know, you're telling the, everybody internally that there's an external enemy, which is another reason for why Putin should be president in perpetuity. And, you know, you can also blame you know, kind of any opposition, you know, for anything, you know, that 
that happens and suggests that that opposition internally is linked to the United States, which is out to get you. You know, there's all kinds of reasons, you know, for why a sort of state of managed confrontation with the United States is quite useful. So, you know, for any administration, all they can do is hope to take the temperature down on this and prevent it from getting out of hand. You know, so, you know, we've, we've just had kind of a war scare. There's already a war going on in Ukraine, but, you know, kind of a scare of an even bigger war with, you know, Russian troops amassing on the borders of Ukraine, clearly meant to send a signal to the United States, you know, don't you start pushing, you know, kind of Ukraine's interests more than, you know, you have been in the past or warning the Ukrainians not to cozy up to NATO again or the United States too much and showing what Russia can do. But at the same time, Russia has been signaling that, you know, they want to have a sort of sit down and still find a rules of the road, a kind of, it's really a way of deconflicting so that things don't get out of hand. Because we've had a couple of episodes where they have got out of hand and very close to getting out of hand in you know, the not so um, distant past and in the past. You know, we've had the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. We had um, the um, Euro Missile Scare in the 1980s when both the Soviet Union and the United States thought that each might be preparing for war. And we've had several, many episodes of kind of potential flashpoints recent times with um, Russia as well. And they still have a significant strategic nuclear arsenal and intermediate um, range and tactical nukes. So we've got to figure out how we're going to manage this. And it's a much more complex world than it used to be because we're not the only nuclear powers. Um, you know, there used to be five traditional nuclear powers on the UN Security Council, and now there are many more. There's been a proliferation and we have nuclear blackmail attempts by North Korea and Iran, and it's a very difficult world to be in. And we have a kind of shared responsibility. But, you know, as I said, it's extremely difficult to um, work this out because I'm not so sure that the Russians really want to, you know, change the situation too much apart from to manage it and maybe find a bit of a way of uh, mutual restraint. I mean, the Biden administration, I think, has already got off to, you know, reasonable start by trying to depersonalize a relationship and put, you know, back on a different footing where you have the Secretaries of State meeting, the National Security Advisors meeting, you know, maybe at some point the defense ministers meeting, you know, the kinds of things where you would have a, I mean, they're not really going to be normal interactions, but diplomacy, you know, work where you have the professional levels meeting. And it's not just all obsessive about is my, is Biden going to meet with Putin, but it's going to really take an awful lot to try to, you know, contain and manage uh, all of the kind of multiple flashpoints. And there's a lot of unfinished business because, you know, the, the Russians have not really, they've not really stepped back and loosened up on anything or, you know, lessened, you know, their efforts to assassinate people, uh, you know, to carry out all kinds of brazen acts. And, uh, you know, we have to be able to send messages to them to stop. I mean, there were these recent ransomware attacks. Was that, um, you know, I don't think we're really entirely sure. Russian criminals for hire. Certainly, the solar winds and the other hacks, and just recently, the head of you know some of the Russian security services blamed the United States for like some self-hacking, you know. So there's kind of you know that we're always going to be in this confrontational state, but it's how we manage it is what we're trying to aim for right now. And considering how important um, Vladimir Putin has been to Russian politics. Uh, how destabilizing do you think Putin's eventual departure will be? And can we expect Russian foreign policy to change at all um, after Putin? Well, it really depends on the manner in which it's handled, right? 
um and so or what happens does he does he just die um you know or does he really stay out till 2036 and then you know he's going to be pretty elderly and then how what is the means in which it's handed off is it seem legitimate uh, and you know there are an awful lot of people outside of um you know the russian uh, internal um, system like Alexei Navalny and others, for example, saying, look, we won't have a choice. Alexei Navalny said, I, I wouldn't mind being president, you know, certainly running for president. And, you know, younger people of other generations saying, look, these guys are going to stay here forever. You know, the people around Putin, you know, until 2036 certainly seems like forever. I mean, if you were born in 2000, you'd be 36 by the time, you know, Putin comes along. If you were 10, you'd be 46. If you were 20, you'd be 56. I mean, your whole life is going to be like disappearing, you know, with only Vladimir Putin. And that kind of, in a way, suggests to other people you don't have any social mobility either. And there's a lot of pressure for change of people. People are not asking for another Russian revolution, but they want to get rid of uh, groups of people who are just robbing the country blind, you know, squirreling away billions of rubles and building palaces all over the place and keeping all the plum jobs for themselves and uh you know denying people the right of freedom of expression there's a lot of people within russia itself who are now political prisoners because they would like to see some change and that's kind of what putin is denying and then there's also this risk inside this inner circle of people deciding that putin doesn't really have it anymore that he hasn't got things under control or that, you know, kind of he's losing his touch or, you know, they'd like to have a chance too. So there could be, the, you know, the equivalent of sort of a palace coup or a kind of pressure put on Putin to leave as well. So there's all kinds of things that could happen here, which the whole uncertainty is destabilizing. Putin himself wants to create certainty by saying, look, I could be here forever. Or well, certainly 2036, which certainly seems like forever, but it actually creates more uncertainty, you know, because really you're just going to be here all that time and, hope that you're going to be as amazingly fit and in command of something by the time you're 84 um okay because he's making a lot of fun of joe biden and all these other older leaders and you know well that could be you you know <laughs> so you'd better be careful there are you you know how, how are you going to manage this and then you know there's that um larger you know issue of where the country's going because there seems to be you know, Amanda, you're asking about, you know, stability, but stability can become stagnation. Is the country not going to go anywhere? Are you just, you know, is the political system going to stagnate? Is the economy going to stagnate? What are you promising people for the future? And I think that is, you know, part of the whole, the whole dilemma there. And Putin has become, in a way, too much the symbol of everything. There's, he himself said that, you know, he wanted to broaden the base of politics but he's done anything but that and i guess in your final in your opinion what do you think is going to be the ultimate departure of putin out of all of these different um different different ways that you've talked about i i honestly don't know um you know i mean i don't know how healthy he is i mean you know but there but with grace of god go all of us right you know i mean people have aneurysms people you know he could have got covid uh, other leaders have had I mean obviously he kept away and you know was making sure that he didn't interact with people um he could very well be um in place until 2036 but the world is changing he can't control everything and I think that you know what we just have to do is just watch things very closely and to try to understand what's happening but change has to come from within with Russia I don't necessarily think that, you know, the contours of Russian foreign policy are going to change, which is part of the other question that you asked, or, but different people have different perspectives. 
And this is a guy who was produced by the KGB. If he's succeeded by somebody who wasn't, they will have a different life perspective and a different context. And we have seen in our own experience about how decisive leadership can be in setting the tone at the top, even if it doesn't decide everything. And we've just had four years of Donald Trump. And how different was that from four years of Barack Obama? And how different is Joe Biden from, you know, both of those as well, even though Biden was the vice president under Barack Obama. Each person brings a different personality, a different perspective, a different worldview uh, to the picture. So things will change. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It was such a pleasure. No, thank you so much, Julia. Thank you, Amanda, as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.